We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Colonel and Hug, The Partnership That Transformed the New York Yankees. The publisher, the University of Nebraska Press. The authors, Steve Steinberg and Lyle Spatz. Please join me as we welcome home Steve Steinberg to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Great. And actually, before we get going, somebody, one of our regulars, asked a very good question uh, when he arrived tonight. He said he noticed the first time it was Lyle Spatz and Steve Steinberg, and this book is Steve Steinberg and Lyle Spatz. Very perceptive. Well, Lyle's a veteran writer, so the first book, uh, he got his name first, and then we just switched to the second book. We do a third book, Lyle will be first again. All right. <laughs> it's not like Rogers and Hart or anything. But I know yeah. it's not alphabetical this time around. But, <laughs> so before we get into the, the Yankee partnership, just a, uh, a process question. When you and Lyle uh, attack a, a subject like this with so much research necessary, how does uh, just the process? Uh, I think we would find it interesting. Do one of you take Miller Huggins? Does the other take Jacob, Jacob Rupert, or how do you go about it? Well, we heavily edit each other's work, and uh, Lyle has a friend who's a, uh, a schoolhood friend from Brooklyn who's a, a mystery writer. He actually won the Edgar Award in the 1980s, and he gave us the ultimate compliment that he can't figure out who wrote what chapter. But basically, somebody's got to take a stab at the first one. But since Huggins and Rupert are really intertwined in every chapter, we almost sort of had to assign it, as opposed to, let's say, 1921, where, you know, somebody does the first crack of the Yankees and the Giants. But if I told you how many times we go through editing our work, you wouldn't believe me. And, uh, and we get pretty comfortable with challenging each other. Ultimately, the one who wrote it the first time has the final call, but it's a lot of mutual respect and give and take. And, and Lyle's in Florida, and I'm usually a night owl, and at 3 a.m. I'll send him a draft of a chapter, and I'm going to bed, and he's waking up with his coffee at 6 a.m. in Florida, so it works good. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, it definitely works well together. It's a, it's a nice partnership. Uh, it has been. And uh, I know that you and, and Lyle, this is your turf, so to speak, that era, but what, what drew you to Jacob Rupert and Miller Huggins specifically? Well, you know, they, they both show up so often in, in histories of the Yankees in different books, and they've never had a focus of their own. And I know that Marty Appel, I can't remember what interview it was, but on some show somebody said, what surprised you the most when you were writing Pinstripe Empire? And he said just how much Rupert, you know, meant uh, to the Yankees. And Lyle and I have have done so much work, you know, on the Yankees of that era. These guys deserved their moment in the sun. They didn't get inducted into the Hall of Fame until decades after they were gone. And the same thing with the book. But everything's got to be corrected at some point in time, that oversight. And uh, we have an extremely knowledgeable crowd. We always have an yep. a knowledgeable crowd, but tonight extremely so. And so we're, I want to make sure we leave plenty of time for their right. questions. But I, I think just to really get us going, and as you said, they are intertwined, but maybe just to give us a little background on each man. So for Jacob Rupert, uh, he, was, he was a congressman. If you could just talk a little bit before we get into the Yankee part of it. He was a congressman and his connection there and with Tammany Hall. 
Yeah, you know, the, on the surface, Rupert and Huggins seems like two very different kind of guys, and Lyle and I at the Sabre National Convention are going to be talking about the odd couple not, because they really have more things in common than one would think on the surface. But Rupert came from a very wealthy uh, family that uh, owned the Rupert Brewery, his father, and they weren't one of the old 400, and they didn't have the money of the Astors or the, uh, the families like that. But they were quite wealthy. He was a, a Tammany candidate when he was in Congress. He didn't have that unusual of a, of a career when he was there. And, uh, and then he, he was there from, I think, 1896 to 1904, for four terms. And then he really took over the brewery. His father died in 1915 and uh, you know, built it up from there. And obviously the whole story of prohibition and American history, our entry into the war, this book has a lot more American history in it than 1921 did because you can't tell Rupert's story without telling the story of a German-American who watched as America slid over from true neutrality to the side of the Allies. And then he lost his main kind of business with prohibition. And unlike maybe some other liquor names that we may know, Rupert bent over backwards to, uh, I firmly believe there was no games being played with backdoor beer going out the back door. And it had a big impact on, you can imagine, on the finances, a lot. And uh, so it's always the house that Ruth built, but it was really the house that Rupert built. Uh, so if you could just talk a little bit about how Rupert Yankee Stadium, basically, uh, with Jacob Rupert. Right, and the, when Rupert bought the Yankees in 1915, they didn't have a ballpark. They were paying rent to the Giants, you know, in the polo grounds. And the Yankees were not a very good team at that time. But one of the things, you know, the Yankees got Ruth, and we could talk about that. They also got Sunday baseball, finally legalized in New York. So now all of a sudden, middle class, lower middle class people could come to the games. And I know the Yankees took that into their analysis when they were building the ballpark between Ruth and Sundays, now it uh, it could pencil out, but it was still an incredibly risky proposition at the time. And before we get shift over to Miller Huggins a bit, there's just a few uh, certain fascinating aspects aspects that I never knew about that uh, of Jacob Rupert. Just a couple of names that I just want to throw out at you, who I had never heard of, to be yeah. honest. And uh, if you could just talk a little about them. The first is. And I, don't, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Helen Wayant. Right. Uh, and there's a little story here about Bachelor Magazine, which I uh, thought was uh, very interesting. Um, when I was growing up, I can confess, I don't know my wife's here, but there was a magazine in the late 50s and early 60s called Bachelor. Does anybody here admit remembering it? It had pictures of nude women. <laughs> but in 1930, and when you were a young adolescent, you know, that was Bachelor Magazine. In 1937 and 1938, there was a short-lived Bachelor magazine, and if you saw the covers of it, um, you would uh, probably see it was very different. It targeted urban uh, gay men, and uh, it was very short-lived. Jacob Hoover was featured in one issue, <laughs> and uh, you know a lot of well-known uh, people. And the fact that you're featured in it does not necessarily mean that you agreed to be in it. But Rupert was featured in it late in his life. And I think we lay out certain evidence and let people, you know, decide. I'm not. We're, Lyle and I are not going back in time to bedrooms, nor do we want to. But uh, uh, there's there's always some mysteries with any uh, person that you write about. And uh, Rupert was a bachelor. Huggins was a bachelor. And Rupert had a, a lady friend that he left one third of his estate to because he never married. 
but it really seems like it was almost like a father-daughter kind of relationship between Helen Wayant and and for many years she lived right near Marty Appel and uh, and he didn't know it and it's one of those things you say if only I knew and I said they probably bumped into each other at the grocery store and the meat counter or the cheese <laughs> counter she didn't she passed away what in 81 Marty in the 80s yeah so she was the third owner of the the other two were two of Rupert's nieces. And two other names that uh, just I want to throw out there. Al Brennan and George, George Perry. These were personal aides of Rupert for many, many years. One was the secretary, and these were two of the guys that he was very, very close to. And, uh, and they knew him very well, and uh, he had a very close relationship. To them. We don't know exactly all the details, but they were two key guys in his uh, life for many, many years. But like Rupert, they were not in, you know, you never see them in the headlines or the neon lights, even less so than him. Right. Okay. And uh, for now, we'll shift over to Miller Huggins a little bit. Uh, before we get to him as the Yankee manager, just a little bit about him as a ball player. Yeah, Huggins came up in the majors in 1904. He was a tiny guy. He's listed in all the databases as 5'6", 140. We have reason to believe that he was far smaller than that. He may have been arguably the smallest man in the history of baseball. We, we show a lot of supporting documents on that. He was the ultimate dead ball era player. He led the National League in walks four times. He led the National League in on-base percentage before they measured it, I think, a couple times. And he was a real firecracker uh, in the... Uh, uh, for the Cincinnati Reds and then was traded to the uh, Cardinals when his manager felt threatened that Huggins was going to take his job and that was uh, Griffith. Clark Griffith got rid of him and years later uh, Gary Herman, the owner of the Reds had a dinner in Cincinnati because that's where Huggins was born and grew up said the biggest mistake he ever made was letting Miller Huggins go. Huggins went on to the Cardinals as a player and then became a player manager after Roger Bresnahan was canned. But Rupert uh, Huggins was totally a dead ball era guy, which makes it more amazing that when Ruth came along that he could see the potential uh, of this guy, Dave Ruth, to revolutionize the game when, when it was a totally different game from the one that he loved and knew. And you get into uh, quite a lot of detail in the book about how the... How, so now he be, he's the manager at this point of the Cardinals, how he then becomes the manager of the Yankees. And just a little... Uh, brief story about that. Well, Huggins, as the manager of the uh, Cardinals, uh, was really calling all the shots, doing all the trades and so forth, and the owner of the Cardinals decided to sell the team and gave him the right, the first option. He went back to Cincinnati to line up his financing with the Fleischman family, the Fleischmans of yeast fame and politically involved with uh, uh, Cincinnati politics. But when he got back in early 1917, he was shocked to find out that the attorney of the team had convinced the owner to sell it to a local group. And they immediately hired a guy named Brian Shrickey to be president of the team. So all of a sudden, you know, there's Huggins who was calling the shots and was going to become the owner. All of a sudden, he, he, the letdown of that, and then knowing that Brian Shrickey, you know, was the kind of guy who came over from the St. Louis Browns that was going to take over a lot of the decision-making. So it was probably time uh, to leave, and then the Yankees ended up having an opening, and... Uh, they went on from there. And one of the things that you talk about is when he, when he does agree to become the Yankee manager or when, when Rupert brings him in, uh, 
that Huggins demanded that he would have the authority to acquire and trade ball players. Right. And, and he brought with him his confidant his, and chief scout, Bob Connery. Uh, just a little about that. Yeah, uh, Connery was the guy that signed uh, Rogers Hornsby. The Cardinals had very little money, and at the time, uh, or, uh, as, as the story goes, Huggins said to Connery, well, uh, don't go scout the upper minor leagues. Let's go to a very the lower minor leagues. Maybe you'll find somebody there. And Connery was truly Huggins' uh, uh, probably his closest friend, and was at his uh, bedside when he uh, when he died, and uh, they they grew very close together. And Connery was the key scout at the beginning, and then he left, and Barrow built up, uh, and Ed Barrow was obviously a key figure in the Yankees. We don't spend as much time on him, in part because we're looking at this relationship, and in part because there's a terrific bio already written on Ed Barrow by Dan Levitt uh, a few years ago. Um, but uh, Connery was the key guy, uh, and even after Connery left the Yankees, when the Yankees saw this guy named Tony Lazeri out in Salt Lake, they insisted that Connery go out and, and check him out, and Connery telegrammed back, he said, I've never seen anybody that good grab him, even though there was concern about his uh, epilepsy, and, uh, and the Yankees uh, went ahead with that. And then kind of the last area of this broad overview that we're doing with Miller Huggins, uh, his health issues, and his health farm. Yeah, Miller Huggins was never a very strong guy, and you know we uncovered that a number of times during his uh, time with the Yankees. He came very close to quitting. He was a very sick guy, and ultimately, uh, we tell how his sister, who he lived with, he lived with his spinster sister. That was his, that was probably his closest friend. And she said, don't quit under fire. And ultimately, he was ready to quit. He didn't quit, and he became you know, very uh, famous. We'll talk a little bit about it more. Very respected. But ultimately, it may have killed him, the stress of uh, running the Yankees and certainly guys like Babe Ruth that uh, uh, can drive. Although Huggins didn't have that much gray hair, but I imagine Ruth would have tried to make people have gray hair. <laughs> and, and I think it did uh, at him. When, when Huggins died, uh, Myrtle, his sister, said that that... That big fellow there took five years off my brother's life. Uh, well, since you mentioned the babe, so we'll, we'll move on to the babe for a little bit. So he's, he's in the story. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. He was not on the <laughs> title. So how, uh, the first thing is, how did the Yankees, uh, the, the acquiring aspect of it from the Yankee standpoint? Well, the, yeah, the Yankees had, uh, if you go back to Babe Ruth when he was on Boston starting to hit home runs, the remarkable thing is, he hit an amazing number of his home runs in the polo grounds in front of uh, the Yankee owners. If you go back on Total Baseball and look at that. And I think Rupert and Colonel Houston, his partner, had been impressed. And Huggins was the one that really urged Rupert to buy Babe Ruth. This is before Barrel came on board. This is a year earlier. And Ruth was not happy in Boston. And that was the famous conversation that we talked where Rupert said to Huggins, you're crazy. You want me to pay $100,000 for a guy? And, and Huggins uh, and, uh, responded, uh, somebody's crazy here. It's the owner of the Red Sox, Harry Frizee, for letting you get him so cheaply. Buy him. Even though I think that Huggins knew this guy was going to be a handful, and, and, which he was, for Rupert and Huggins. And you do get into other stories throughout the book of other great players who the Yankees did try to get who they did not. Uh, yeah, some, not of these, some of these have not, I don't think, have been covered beforehand. That the Yankees made serious attempts at uh, Joe Jackson. Uh, Tris Speaker was an uh, interesting side story. 
and Tai Kaba. Now there's two new Kaba biographies. I don't know if both of them talk about that. I know I'm reading one of them now that does touch on the fact that there were stories of the Yankees going after Tai Cobb. And what would have happened if Joe Jackson had joined the Yankees? We always love to do what if about baseball. And they would have, and then he wouldn't have been on the Black Sox. Or would he have been with Ruth or would they have not gotten Ruth if they had Jackson? And uh, they had a chance to get Tris Speaker also and uh, passed on it because they liked a guy named Fritz Maisel better. And Fritz Maisel is a very forgotten guy because he's probably he was out of baseball after 1918 in the majors. But they loved Fritz Maisel because he was a speedster. He stole 74 bases in 1914 and they said the fans love that. You know, so. so early on they didn't make the, the best personnel decision. But, you know. Well Babe worked out okay. Yeah, he did. And the, the 1925 showdown Right, I, I do want to say one thing about the bait. You know, so much has been written about him, it's sort of hard to, how do you give a new twist to it? So one of the things that we did is, we, we have a chapter called The Risks of Ruth. And we take every, and not everyone, everyone that we found incident, where you see, if not by, for some grace of God or whatever, you know, Ruth could have been dead or ended his career earlier. I mean, he was in numerous car accidents, he, he the famous case where he had a naked woman chasing him and he was naked through the train <laughs> and she had a knife and uh, the, the funniest part about that story is the sports writers back then weren't like nowadays they they didn't want to report that stuff so they, evidently the sports writers were just like they didn't notice it naked Ruth was through <laughs> and then there was a, in Detroit there was a jealous husband with a gun going I mean there were a lot of times that the Yankees it, it was a gamble for Z said Ruth Ruth was a handful. And Huggins sort of, uh, you know, babied him and gave him separate rules, which really meant no rules, because what do you do? If you suspend the guy, Rupert's going to lose so much money because he's such a draw. And then in 1925, the Yankees were doing so poorly, and Ruth was doing so poorly. He was very sick earlier that year. If there was any time to pick your spots to suspend him, it's when the Yankees were already 27 games out of first place. <laughs> And Ruth was hitting a 266, and they had that showdown, and uh, uh, and that helped in a lot of ways. It saved Ruth's career, and it made the Yankees come back in the late 20s. As you were doing the research, uh, or you and Lyle doing the research, did anything uh, su surprise you about this 1925 showdown that? Uh, really that you had never heard before? Well, it just reinforced how remarkable. I, I call it sort of a moment of truth in an organization because so often an organization, when you got a superstar like that and you know he doesn't like this little manager, and you have to remember, Huggins was not admired at that time. The Yankees didn't win his first few years, so they really, most of the press wanted Huggins fired. When they finally won in 1921, everybody said, well, that's because of Babe Ruth. Huggins didn't do anything. And then in 22, they were swept in the World Series, and and uh, they did win in 23, but then they didn't win in 24 and 25. So most people did not think much of Huggins. So the amazing thing is for Rupert to decide, and maybe that was his business instinct as an owner of a brewery, that I can't let the inmates run the asylum, so to speak. I'm, I'm going to back up my manager. How often do we see that? And Ed Barrow has a famous quote. He says, get rid of them. We'll get a new team. And that's what the Yankees, uh, they send a message out. And then I think Ruth really had a much better relationship with Huggins because he realized that Rupert, I mean, Rupert said uh, Ruth can quit if he wants to. Miller Huggins is the guy calling the shots. 
And after that, it, it, the relationship got a lot better. Most people thought after 25 that Ruth was absolutely finished. He was 31 years old, and the way that he partied, he was an old 31. And I don't think people realize the comeback in 1926, how stunning it was from seventh place. Most people think the, the dynasty of the Yankees, well, they were good in the 20s. In the early 20s, they had a lot of made stars like Carl Mays. And then in the late 20s, they had to go to the minor leagues. They still had Ruth. He was a common guy. Wade Hoyt was a common guy. But it was a very different team. It was a team of quiet guys that minded their own business, guys like Gehrig and Lazeri, and not the troublemakers that Huggins had beforehand. Um, and then they came back in 26. No one really expected the Yankees to win the pennant, or very few people. And they went on a 16-game winning streak, I believe that, and uh, never looked back. That gives us a very good uh, overview of an extremely detailed, well-researched book. So I would like, since we do have such a knowledgeable, esteemed crowd, I'd like to kind of turn it over to them at this point. So who wants to bat first here? I'm glad you mentioned Barrow, because it's a bet noir, because when everybody mentions the, the greatest general managers, they always leave off Ed Barrow's name. And I was interested in, in that I noticed that before they sold Ruth to the Yankees, the heart of the Boston pitching staff was also sold to the Yankees. And never seen that mentioned, you know? Well, well a couple of th th things on that. And Ed, uh, Dan Levitt, who wrote the Ed Barrow bio, also has co-authored a book with Mark Armour called In Pursuit of Penance a really good book that looks at the history of the general managers, and, and they certainly give Barrow his due. And uh, when Barrow came over to the Yankees, then they started, uh, the Yankees really stripped the Red Sox of all the rest of the talent that they had. Harry Frazee was the owner, that's a whole other story, was the owner of the Red Sox, and he was close to the Yankees, and you know he needed the money, he wanted to maintain that relationship. And... Uh, and quite frankly, and I've written an article in, in, a, in a baseball journal that when those trades were made, they weren't that one-sided at the time. They turned out to be terribly one-sided. But Barrow and, and, and Huggins had the ability to size up a player and see potential. Wade Hoyt was one of them. And Wade Hoyt wasn't even the main guy in that trade, but Huggins said right after they got Hoyt that, you know, Hoyt, Hoyt could be incredible. So they they did get them. And, uh, and then the Red Sox you know, had very little left. The other thing I'm interested in is the lineage of managers, because because like John McGraw, he, he taught somebody who taught somebody who taught somebody, and you can still see managers today who are, who, who are in that line. I wonder if Miller Huggins had any line. You know, that's a really good question, and I, I suppose if someone asked me, is he a great manager, I'd say he was, but you can't draw that kind of lineage from him. He was a very introspective kind of guy. He was a very cerebral guy. I mean, when he was a rookie, I came across accounts that he would show up smoking his pipe. Now, that would be strange nowadays, but can you imagine the ruffian age of 1904, if a rookie second baseman came and, you know, was smoking his pipe before the game? And, uh, you know, Huggins had Art Fletcher, and uh, th there wasn't nearly that lineage. So I guess that's something that you know, McGraw, you know, and even Stengel came out of McGraw, and who came out of Stengel, that lineage is not nearly as rich, and I've never really explored that or thought about it. I thought DeRocher played for him, though, briefly. Yeah, DeRocher had an amazing, uh, and we have a quote in there where Huggins told DeRocher, us little guys have to use this, and if we do, we can run circles around them. And Rupert loved, I mean, Huggins loved DeRocher, and you might think that they were totally different guys. They really weren't. They were both very scrappy, very intense. And once Huggins died, uh, Barrow and DeRocher were like oil and water. 
made very quickly. He was, he was guy. I mean, Barrow was a tough-nosed guy. We have one quote in the book where Mark Koenig, who was a very sensitive guy, shortstop for the Yankees, and he made a statement which is so revealing. He, he said, Ed Barrow made you feel like a midget, but Miller Huggins made you feel like a giant. That, you know, Barrow was the old school, the authoritarian, you're going to do it this way or else, you know, the highway. And, and Huggins made guys feel like they could do anything. We talk in the book and we really get into it. Lou Gehrig came very close to quitting as a rookie. He didn't think he was going to make it. And Huggins, Huggins encouraged him and held him on. And Lazari, uh, you know, felt the same way about Huggins developing young players. And it was very ironic because after 1920, the early 20s, everybody said, oh, the Yankees are finished. They can't get stars from the Red Sox. The Red Sox have no more stars, but they forgot. And when Miller Huggins was in St. Louis, the team had no money, and he developed players. And he went back and he did that again with the Yankees in the late 20s. He loved it, and he was good at it. Okay, I have two uh, 26 World Series, Andrew Page was getting thrown out to be in second. Yeah, that, that, those are two good questions. I, I, I uh, Babe Ruth ended the 1926 series being thrown out at second base, and Ed Barrow made the statement that was the only dumb play he ever saw Babe Ruth make in his career. Uh, Babe Ruth did run on his own. I don't think it was a dumb play because Grover Cleveland Alexander was pitching and Ruth had a very logical explanation. He ran on his own. Huggins did defend him. And his position was, okay, I'm on first base. Maybe Alex is going to give up one single. Maybe, maybe. You're not going to give up two hits. i got to get to second base. And people forget if you go back to game six in that series, uh, Ruth stole second base in game six. Uh, so was it a dumb move? I mean, he... And, and Ruth was not a... Not a, I mean, he, he was a big guy, but so many of the pictures that we remember of him are from the 1930s. And in the 20s, he was, you know, leaner. And certainly in the comeback season of 26, when he worked at Artie McGovern's gym down here by, uh, is, is there still a gym there, Marty? Or, uh, I mean, Ruth really got into shape in, in early 1926. The guy who had the gym was the brother of the former lightweight, I think McGovern was the lightweight champion of the world. And Ruth was as good a physical specimen in 1926 as he ever was. Carl Mays uh, was a very difficult guy, and ultimately uh, Huggins did not like him. And we sort of come to the conclusion of the book, and this is very interesting, that Huggins may not have really wanted Carl Mays, but that Rupert and his co-owner were such impatient guys to want to win. They wanted to win with made stars. And I think they realized, uh, and Rupert may realize afterwards that that may have been a mistake. And exactly when Huggins had, you know, the falling out with Carl Mays, uh, Fred Lee, the sports writer, has that famous quote where he says, I can't understand how a gentle guy like Miller Huggins would say, if I saw Carl Mays in the gutter, I would kick him. They said that about Joe Bush and Carl Mays. They said, anybody, I take the shirt off my back. But, um, you know, we don't know the whole story of that. But obviously... Um, and, and, and the president of the American League tried to prevent that trade from happening. And the Yankees, Rupert, took on the president and basically destroyed Ben Johnson, and then the commissioner came in. And in many ways, Huggins was Ben Johnson's guy, because Ben Johnson, the president of the American League, was really the key matchmaker that got 
Huggins to meet with Rupert. So I think Huggins would have, was in a very awkward position. I never, we've never found a single comment, and we do a lot of microfilm work, where Miller Huggins, when they got Carl Mays, said anything positive. He was just silent on Carl Mays. And Carl Mays was the best pitcher in the game, if not one of the two or three at the time. Yeah, well, the other amazing thing, and many of you may know, I mean, Carl Mays is the only guy to kill, I mean, maybe that's not the word, his pitch killed the only player in Major League Baseball, and many people would be uh, absolute wreck after that happened. You look at the famous boating accident, with the, the tragedy of the three Dodgers and the one that came back and didn't come back. Carl Mays was able to put that behind him. And he said at the time that he said, I have a family to feed. I've got to go out and do it. And, uh, and Mays lived in Portland, Oregon for many years. Sometimes we all have things that we want to do. I always wanted to talk to Johnny Pesky, and I never got around to doing it because Pesky went to Carl Mays' baseball school in Portland. Uh, and, of course, Pesky's gone now, so... Steve, yeah, did, uh, did Well, you know, in, in many ways, the reason why uh, the president of the American League so opposed the Carl Mays thing was because he didn't like this idea that a player gets mad, angry at his owner and says, you know, I better get traded. And I don't know if, if Mays wanted necessarily to go to the Yankees. The Yankees still weren't that great at the time. This was uh, Huggins' second year. In the middle of the year, I think they were they were in the upper, the first division. But Mays wanted to get off of the Red Sox. Uh, the team wasn't doing well. He was pitching pretty well, but they weren't hitting for him. And he had some personal things. His house burned down, and there was suspicion it was arson. Again, he was never a really likable, you know, guy. But he, he, is that the question you're asking? What you were leading towards? I was wondering if they had any effect on that uh, wanting to leave the South because he was so tough in the courthouse, and he had he had probably a lot of credit while he was there. In in Boston? Yeah, and I thought that maybe Mays uh, was objective to his personality and what he meant. You know. Um, I don't have a lot to add to that, and maybe there's more to that story. There is a biography of Carl Mays. It's a very hard one to get, and it's very apologetic for Carl Mays. It's a, a Boston reporter who really, you know, was the mouthpiece of, uh, of Mays. And and I don't think Ruth and Mays did get, get along very well, but I don't think that many guys got along with uh, in Carl Mays on, on his teams. We do have one picture in the, in the book, and there's a lot of rare pictures in this book, where Carl Mays is actually clowning around and smiling. And I think it's the only picture that I've seen Carl Mays smiling. It's before the 21 series, and they've, they've got a player, they're wrestling to the ground, and they're, they're jokingly, all the Yankee guys just messing around. Um, One other question, Paul. Uh, yeah. Leave, leave back to Bay, uh, when you were talking about the It'll come back, I'm sure. So right. I'm not going anywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come back. If you think of it, we'll come back. Yeah. So you don't worry. Um, 
Oh, I know what oh, yeah. okay. I just wanted to commend you on that chapter on daily risks of paper because so much information has gotten out recently, especially with Dan Levin and Palmer and those guys finding that the team is growing and this and that. And there were all the supporters on the other side complaining that he wasn't really that broke. His records are in Texas that might testify to that. But yeah, the records in Texas, I think, supported the fact that he was, he had some real financial uh, problems. The tax returns from the University of Texas in Austin. Um, and you, but, so you're following up by asking, or? Oh, I'm sorry if I kind of. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come back. I want to, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think they, they had a fairly close relationship, and in the 1926 series, it was sort of a, an interesting sub-story that here's, you know, Hornsby now, the player manager who was the star that others discovered, even though it was uh, Bob Connery discovered him, and uh, Hornsby had, had given uh, credit to Huggins and uh, tinkered with his batting style. Huggins was definitely ahead of the game, but there were a lot of guys that instinctively knew. John McGraw loved the hit and run, but John McGraw did not like the sacrifice. Instinctively, he knew that you don't give up an out. And Huggins, and I think base runners, there were guys like like Huggins that knew that scoring runs is is the name of the game. And he worked, and he had a tiny. Uh, uh, a tiny strike zone to begin with, and then he crouched, and it was almost impossible. <laughs> and, and some accounts said he'd never even look at a pitch until he had two strikes on him. And, he, and uh, uh, Huggins did not get along with umpires very well, and it's amazing that he depended on them that much to walk because some of those pitches you take when there's an umpire that you think isn't very good uh, are pretty dangerous to take. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they had a good relationship. Did, I'm trying to remember, did, is Hornsby known as a walker or more as a free hitter? He didn't walk <coughs> that much. Did anybody know offhand? Or? Nobody walked. I think Hornsby's batting average carried most of the time. Yeah. And he also yeah. left the league probably in Now, one way to have a 400 on base percentage is to hit 400. <laughs> <laughs> when they chose the site for uh, Yankee Stadium, uh, I know they have many attributes with the subway line and everything, but was the fact that it was visible from the polar grounds, that they could sort of stick it to the pool up, is that one reason they picked that spot? You know, I don't know, Mike. Do you have anything to add to that? I mean, McGraw felt that they were doing something ridiculous by going to the Bronx. And Rupert used to always say, Yankee Stadium was a mistake. It was McGraw's, the Giants' mistake, not mine. And then one of the historians, uh, Sullivan, who wrote about Yankee Stadium, said, you know, McGraw may have been a brilliant guy and ahead of his time, but as a demographer, he was stuck in the 19th century. And the subways had just opened there in, in the Bronx. But and they wouldn't have gone there if there was no subway station. Right. That was clearly important. Uh, 
the, uh, the fact that you can see it from the polo grounds. I don't think it was that important. It was a plot of land that was suitable and worked and had the subway stop. So. Yeah, McGraw probably hated seeing it. <laughs> they called it Goatville. <laughs> well, it's hard to remember how much New York City even changed when you know Rupert had a mansion around 90th on uh, Fifth Avenue, and I mean, you go back over 100 years, and and even in Manhattan was Goatville. I mean, you know, Talk just a little bit about Rupert's wealth and his way of life. I mean, he lived like a rich yeah, man. Yeah, Rupert did live like a rich man, and one of the real um, you know mysteries was. When, you know, he, he, I mean, it, it, it was uh, the life uh, of a wealthy man. I mean, you know, he, he worked hard in the brewery, and when he was a young man, you know, he'd come home for, I don't know, it was for lunch or for dinner, and then ride his bicycle for Central Park, and he'd go out to different events. And when he was in Washington, he was one of the most eligible bachelors, when, and he would go to events at the White House, and, uh, you know, he lived that life. Then he had prohibition. When he died, he was... Uh, Estimated to be worth between seventy and a hundred million dollars, and when the probate was finished, he was down to five million, and we couldn't get our arms around it. And then after we handed the manuscript in, we located finally the probate papers, and I came back here for a week in the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. And unfortunately, Rupert, even after prohibition, didn't cut back, and we could only fill in the blanks. But basically. He just, it was almost, when I think of his finances as they were described in all those legal documents, it was almost like that ball of rubber bands that you see on somebody's desk all twirled together. And, you know, maybe with prohibition, he had to say, well, I'm going to pledge this property, you know, to do that. And then one thing led to another. But even when he had the brewery, he was the face of the brewery. But if you go back, his father, he had a lot of siblings. And his father, you know, left big chunks of the brewery to the siblings. And the same thing with the Rupert real estate. You always saw George, Jacob Rupert in the newspaper when he bought another building in what he called the Grand Central Corridor. But, you know, he might have even been a minority owner in it. So we, we had to actually do some adjusting in the last couple chapters of the book. Um, because, uh, and ultimately, that led, years later, it wasn't until the 40s where they had to sell the team the family did because you know, they delayed having to pay the tax, the inheritance tax, and I don't even know how onerous it was back then in inheritance tax, but... Um, he had this mansion on Fifth Avenue, he right. had this estate in Garrison, he had these exotic hobbies. Yeah, well, he did, yeah, he had, Jacob Rupert, he raised, uh, he had rare jade collection, he had a rare book collection, and it's very interesting, and it's a very telling uh, in 1920, he put a lot of his rare books for sale. We actually found the library has the like the advertisement from the rare bookseller, and the thinking is probably that he had so many breweries renting from him. I mean, taverns on the first floors of his buildings, and all of a sudden, prohibition came in, and they were gone. He sold a lot of his treasured books in early 1920 when prohibition started. But he was the best of everything. He had the best. St. Bernard dogs that would win at the Westminster Kennel Club. He was in horse racing, and I think, you know, he got out of it, and we get into why he got out of it, but I think one of the reasons, and we may not even discuss that, is Rupert wanted to be number one. Second place might as well be eighth place. And I don't think in horse racing he ever could have really competed with the Whitney's and the Belmonts and the Hayes 
You know, those families were such deep pocketed. He had a horse that ran in the in the Belmont Stakes. He had some good horses, but they never they either broke down or whatever. And the Yankees gave Rupert something that horse racing did not, that recognition and that source of pride uh, to literally be the best in the world at something. And that's one of the things that he and Huggins had in common. Both these guys were almost insanely competitive to win, where if they didn't win, they became almost ill. And with Huggins in the late 20s, it became, he didn't have the Carl Mazes of the world to drive him crazy, but every time he'd win a pennant, then he'd worry, how am I going to stay on top? And he had one quote we have in the book, he says, it's like climbing Mount Everest. What do you do when you get there? You stay a little while, then you got to go back down. And then you're going to have to climb back up again. And after the great 27 Yankees, one sports writer described Huggins almost as pathetic. He was running around in the winter meetings trying to make trades, trying to strengthen the team. He had arguably the the strongest team in the history of baseball, <laughs> and here's Miller Huggins, and nobody wanted to trade with him because the Yankees always, the trades always turned out badly for the other teams and good for the Yankees. When I was a kid, you could, you could see the, uh, the Rupert Brewery in the Upper East High. And when the Third Avenue elevator went by, you could see the big food kettles and things like that. But the strange thing is, is it wasn't a very big beer in New York City. But when you went to New England, it was like the number one beer wherever you went. So I would have thought that was decision. Okay, I, I actually thought it was bigger in New York because he didn't uh, do what, like, eventually Bush started to do where they, they would uh, brew it remotely and truck it. And it's a whole... We get into, you know, August, uh, Gussie Bush and Jacob Rupert had some real sparks. You can imagine if the two of them got together. Of course, Bush was much younger at the time, and Bush really challenged him. And there actually then was a competing national brewers organization that came to be basically because Bush <laughs> couldn't get along with Rupert. And actually, as soon as Rupert died, very shortly thereafter, the two organizations merged. I think my impression not be true, and maybe because he didn't actually win, but Huggins, they didn't win until 21, but they got better right away, right? I mean, the guy who yeah. managed the Yankees before Huggins was a real disappointment. Right, they, 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 they got better in 1918 and 1919. They may have gotten, you know, fourth place, third place, but again, the Yankee fans were impatient, and the other thing is, in both 1918 and 1919, they were right there in early July, and both seasons, the same thing happened. They went into, they were, it's been... And in 1916, by the way, Rupert's second year, they did take over first place in early July. And you read the newspapers there, the city became, I mean, it was exciting and electric. And then they got hit at the end of July by, I would suggest, more injuries than any starting lineup in history of baseball. I've never really measured it. Uh, broken ribs, broken legs, broken arms. I mean, it's unbelievable. And they fell to fourth place. But New York is impatient. And Huggins recognized that, and Rupert did. And Huggins, even in the beginning... Uh, said to his sister he was worried that the New Yorkers, the fans, the press might not give him time to build a winner. And then Rupert went on and got these guys like Carl Mace that felt, we're already stars. We don't need a manager. You know, just don't bother us. And uh, they were tough to deal with. But Huggins had a personality. He didn't have an ego. And in some ways I thought about it. I didn't discuss it on the, on the, uh, on the show earlier this week. But it's, it's sort of like Joe Torre didn't have a huge ego. And Huggins didn't either. He didn't need that. He let let the players get the headlines. They congratulate him. He said, "Go congratulate the stars, the you know the stars of my team." You know, I don't need that. He really didn't need it. Rupert 
That's the difference between them. Rupert, I think, really enjoyed it when people would say, wow, you're a great owner or whatever. Huggins, you almost got the feeling, you know, the adulation was not, you know, that important to him. One of the things that we try to do, and I know that in my, in my work I try to do is, when I write a book about, and all with a book about somebody, I really want to get my arms around the person to really understand heart and soul what that guy was really like. And I hope we... Uh, you know, we, we've uh, tried to accomplish that in this book. And again, it's really not baseball in a vacuum because we've got so much, you know, American history. I mean, you can imagine Rupert, a German-American, and seeing... We have a picture of the Lusitania, and there's a fellow author far more famous than me from Seattle who's just written a number one New York Times bestseller, uh, Dead Weight, Eric Larson, on the sinking Lusitania. But that boat had a dramatic effect on, on the German-American community because once that boat went down... It, it would be pretty hard to lobby that we should be truly, you know, neutral. And a lot of those German groups had to go underground. They were considered, uh, uh, you know, almost like treasonous. And of course, who owned all the breweries in the United States? German American families. Who was the United States fighting the war against? The Germans. And the Anti-Prohibition League was just uh, handed, you know, on a silver platter, and they played it uh, to the maximum and uh, and got prohibition through it. Yeah, I mean, there's two things. I mean, there's one thing is it just seems that throughout history, guys come on the Yankees and they get a little bit better than they would have been otherwise right at the end of the career. Uh, Wilson Moore, I think, was uh, an amazing story. He led the, the American League in run average in 1920. Uh, seven. He was a rookie. He was balding. I think he was 31 years old. And I think Darrow deserves a lot of credit for finding him. He had a 31 and four record, and they bought him from a lower mine. And he had a screwball, but it ruined his arm, and he really only had one good year. George Pipgrass is a very interesting situation because Pipgrass, who became a 27 game winner for the Yankees in, uh, in the late 20s, the Yankees got him in the early 20s, and Huggins. Uh, they would say he had the patience of Job. He believed in Pipgrass and nurtured him in the minor leagues and in spring training for three or four years and never gave up on him. Pipgrass didn't have control. Once he got control, then the Yankees, uh, they had a great pitcher in Pipgrass. And that patience that Huggins had was pretty special. Pretty, uh, pretty difficult because the New York fans, uh, there's the one World Series game that Pipgrass pitched. I'm trying to think it was in 27, where he gave up a triple in the first inning, and the fans were screaming to Huggins to take Pipgrass out. He may have even given up a couple runs in the first inning, and I want to say he won the game 7-2 to two or 9-1, to one, and Huggins stayed with him. I mean, when he died, one of the reporters, it might have been Damon Runyon, said, you know, he went against the wishes of the mob. The mob always, you know, you know wants to shoot from the hip and, and make quick decisions, I was interested in, in Rupert's connection to Tommy Hall, which I didn't know about, because every time I've seen photographs of New York politicians, it's always at the polo grounds shaking John McGraw's hand. I didn't know there was a there was a uh, there was a connection with, with the Yankees, you know. Yeah, I you know Rupert wasn't really plugged into the really I think the the, the deep hardcore. I, I found a, a uh, PhD thesis that somebody had written at Hunter College back in the fifties or sixties. And it was about it was about Tammany Hall. I think we probably cited in our bibliography 
from like 1895 to 1905 or something, right the era that Rupert was in Congress. And I found it very interesting that Rupert's name never showed up in that. So I think it was more Tammany wanted a German-American to be on the ticket, to be in Congress, to get the, you know, to make sure they get that German vote. But I don't think Rupert was ever real plugged into it. And it almost sounds like the Rupert family had to pay Tammany Hall a significant amount of money to become the Tammany candidate, unopposed, uh, 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 to get the blessing of Tammany Hall. Because even in the 50s, we see hardline Democrats like Tallulah Bankhead, and she always showed up at, at the polo grounds, not Tammany Stadium. Oh, interesting. Did you sit next to her? <laughs> I lost my virginity. Okay, now you know the... No. <laughs> we don't need to hear that. She had a big hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, a lot of women had the big hats in those days. You wonder the guys sitting behind them. How do they... Yeah, I think, he, I think he did sell a lot in New York. I... I, I What, what, you know, Huggins died in 1929, very tragically, very young. If you look at pictures of him, you'd, you'd swear this is a 70-year-old man and he was 50. But we do have to continue into the 1930s, even though the partnership is gone. And, and the thing to Rupert's credit is, people ask about like comparing him with George Steinbrenner. Rupert was more of a hands-off kind of guy. He hired capable men and he let them do their job. And if you look at the men that Rupert hired over the course of his year, of his years, the key hires. Some of them were absolutely brilliant. Huggins, McCarthy, Ed Barrow, George Weiss. I mean, ultimately, in any executive position, baseball or not baseball, the guys you hire as the head of the organization speak. The only two guys that didn't work out that well were managers, Donovan and the teens, and Shockey when they, there just was nobody there after Huggins uh, died. And, and Rupert, we have one, uh, thing in the book where Rupert actually put his foot down and disagreed with McCarthy and Beryl. It was very rare. They did not want to get involved with the farm system. And Rupert was so upset he was spending a lot of money on these minor league stars and it was Lynn Larry and you know he spent $100,000 on two guys that didn't pan out and he basically overruled Beryl and McCarthy and said we're going to start a minor league system. And we think that Rupert actually hired um, George Weiss on, on his own because Barrow had suggested Connery and Connery who we talk is the scout that discovered Hornsby went on to buy a minor league team in St. Paul and the Yankees spent a lot of money with St. Paul and a lot of those guys really didn't pan out that well and Rupert was not real happy with Connery by then and may have decided I'm going to go find my own guy and find this George Weiss who went on for another half century and some of you I don't know if you know, it's a quirk of history, but the first Yankee manager that Rupert had was Wild Bill Donovan. And George Weiss was a young baseball guy in the early 1920s. And they were going to the winter meetings, and Donovan and Weiss were sharing the same bird, or upper-lower. And I can't remember who had the upper or the lower, but I mean, Donovan being the, the more senior guy should have had the lower bird. And I think he was such a nice guy. He said, you know what? George, I'll take the upper bird. You go to the lower bird. That was one of the worst train crashes in American history. And Wild Bill Donovan was killed. And George Weiss went on to a Hall of Fame career for another half century. It's a pretty chilling uh, story where they um, they didn't switch. 
uh, you know, places, and one was killed, and the other one, I think, hardly got scratched. Steve, did you come up with anything beyond he can't even manage himself in terms of Hooper turning down the roof for a manager? Um, when Ruth remarried in the late 20s his second wife was a pretty strong woman and I think she started managing the finances she was even doling out the money to him and I think Ruth probably still had his dalliances but he, he, he behaved more but I think that Barrow had a huge a big role in that and Barrow uh, really disliked Ruth I mean uh, Barrow managed him and almost got in a fight with him in the teens and Rupert, I think, had more of a soft spot in his heart. Um, I think Beryl, I don't know what you're thinking of, I think Beryl had a lot to do with the fact that he just didn't want the Yankees to even begin to think of Ruth as a possible manager. And, uh, and uh, probably, you know, sticking with McCarthy was a good deal. But, you know, we forget. Rupert, and I wanted to find more about it, but we didn't. Rupert was used to winning. The Yankees won three pennants from 26 to 28. Between 1929 and 1935, seven years went by. They only won one. And that must have driven Rupert just crazy. And again, he had the patience because he kept he kept on, he held on to McCarthy. He believed in McCarthy. You know, they didn't win, in, I can't remember if it was 33 or 34, and he gave him an extension. And that's when Ruth said, well, I think I can do a better job than McCarthy. And it was almost like Rupert with Huggins back over again. He believed in his guy, and guess what happened? 36 through 39, Rupert was rewarded, although he didn't live to see the last, um, the last pennant. He died in January of 39. But it was, it was a very hands-off, and I'm going to believe in my guys and back them to the limit, which is pretty refreshing back then. And uh, it, it, it set a pattern that I think Mark and Dan's book you know, they talk about other Yankee regimes that were successful. Did Rupert hire McPhail? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Because McPhail was still with the Dodgers when Rupert died, wasn't he, Marty? I can't remember. Well, McPhail was one of the, the top of and the And and uh, you know, Rupert wasn't a genius. He was very much against night baseball. Of course, Barrow was more so. He was against broadcasting games, and I have a wonderful picture. Didn't make it in the book because you always hand in a book in the deadline, and then you find a picture, <laughs> and it's a picture of Rupert. And I showed him my PowerPoint presentation shortly before he died, and he's in the hospital bed, and he's pretty—he's smiling, but he's pretty wasted away, and he's got his hand on a radio, and he loved listening to the '38 World Series on the radio, and he talked about wanting to do it for shut-ins like me. And I told Lyle, my co-author, who's a little older than me, I didn't even know what that meant, a shut-in. And it was a term for people that couldn't get out. And although even that's not the whole story, because I think the, the Dodgers decided to broadcast games, the, and, and the Yankees' hands was, were, was forced. But um, not everything that he did, but an awful lot that he did was right. Well, it was almost his last contribution, because he got along with the Giants and the Dodgers. There was no radio, New York baseball in the 30s. And then he's sick in the hospital. He can't go to the 38 World Series. So he listens to the broadcast on the radio, which was done by Mel Allen, very young. Mel Allen. And then Mel Allen got 
You know, one of the things that the benefit of doing microfilm work for some of the more obscure New York papers, you get a very rich understanding of events, and sometimes you have myths in baseball, and there's a famous myth that when Rupert was dying, uh, you know, Babe Ruth went into the, the hospital, and it's the only time that Rupert called him Babe and said, Babe, Babe, and, you know, it's a real tearjerker of a scene, but Dan Daniel, a very uh, respected writer, had basically had written that Rupert was too far gone and that by the time Ruth got to the hospital, it's a sweet story, but it ain't true. <laughs> Dude, uh, we can get to the question, but first we're going to just have to say farewell through the time constraints of the podcast audience. The one thing I, I just want to make uh, follow up with something that you said, the book, the photographs are really beautiful. Uh, they really tell a story within themselves uh, of Jacob Rupert, Miller Huggins, Babe Ruth, other other people. It's the, the photographs are, are fascinating. Most of the pictures in the book have not been seen, or I would say, for eighty or ninety years. And uh, I always like that the photographs should be as special as the text. You want to uncover some new things, which is hard. Like on the twenty seven Yankees, I'm not sure they've been written about so much. You know, while I felt God, is there something special about the twenty seven Yankees uh, as opposed to let's say the wrists of Ruth? We give a new a twist to something by rearranging the material. Um, but the photographs, uh, unfortunately, they, they did not get spread out throughout the book, uh, but they're gathered in two places, and they're terrific. They, they really know. tell a story, and the you, tell, you and Lyle told a, a really detailed, well-researched story of these, uh, specifically of these two men plus others. And uh, for those listening, again, the name of the book, The Colonel and Hug, The Partnership That Transformed the New York Yankees, published by the University of Nebraska Press, forward by Marty Appel, written by Steve Steinberg and Lyle Spatz. Thank Thank you you very much. Thanks.